Memorial Day has sometimes become merely a three-day holiday weekend, symbolically marking the beginning of summer vacation. But the original intent of Memorial Day, as Carol said earlier, is an annual time to honor and remember all those who died while serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. It's not Veterans Day, right? That's in November. That's for all veterans. Memorial Day is specifically for those who have died while serving in the military. For me, that includes remembering the stories about my great-uncle Wilbur, who was killed in action during World War II. Many of you can likely think of other family members. When I think about honoring the legacy of those who have given their lives in military service to this country, it's also to remember that part of what they died for was that future generations might have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As John Adams, our Unitarian forebear and second president of the United States, wrote to his wife, Abigail, about why he and others risked dying in the American Revolutionary War, he wrote, I must study politics. I must study war that my sons might have the liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. And my sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, natural architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children the right and the liberty to study painting and poetry, music, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. But in our nation's history, this progression towards things that make for peace has too often been undermined by war. In 2002, then-Senator Obama delivered a now-famous speech against the Iraq War that I agree with in many ways. He said, I stand before you as someone who is not opposed to war in all circumstances. What I am opposed to is a dumb war. What I am opposed to is a rash war. What I am opposed to is the cynical attempt by armchair warriors to shove their ideological agendas down our throats, irrespective of the cost in lives and the hardships borne at home. What I am opposed to is the attempt by political hacks to distract us from the rise in the uninsured, the rise in poverty rates, a drop in the median income, to distract us from corporate scandals. The consequences of war are dire and the sacrifices immeasurable. We we may have occasion in our lifetime to once again rise up in the defense of our freedom and pay the wages of war, but we ought not, we will not travel down that hellish path blindly, nor should we allow those who would march off and pay the ultimate sacrifice, who would prove the full measure of their devotion with their blood to make such an awful sacrifice in vain. Ironically, however, from our vantage point now 14 years in the future from that 2002 speech, we know that if the United States remains in combat in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria until the end of President Obama's term, a near certainty at this point, he will leave behind an improbable legacy as the only president, the only president in American history to serve two complete terms with the nation at war. 
President Obama's visit to Hiroshima, Japan, is also a reminder that in contrast to his vision, which I admire, of working toward a nuclear-free world, the reality is that his administration has reduced the nuclear stockpile less than any other post-Cold War president. Here at UUCF, our mission statement is to encourage spiritual growth, to build beloved community, to act for peace and justice in the world. And that middle section is intentionally intended to remind us of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's prophetic warning that, the, you know, it's fine to say we should build beloved community, but we should know that the three greatest threats to building beloved community, if, and if we're serious about beloved, building beloved community, we'll address these threats. He said those triple threats are racism, materialism, and militarism. The problem is not the military used well and responsibly, as President Obama said in his also highly ironic Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, which was given just for him being elected. Um, He said, there are two seemingly irreconcilable truths, that war is sometimes necessary and that war at some level is always an expression of human folly. The problem is not the military, but militarism, the misuse of blood and treasure that should be used to support the common good here at home and around the world to instead support the military-industrial complex. Militarism undermines peace and prosperity, and it disrespects the memory of those who died while serving in our U.S. armed forces. As Unitarian Universalists, it's also important to keep in mind our UU Sixth Principle, the goal of world community and peace, liberty, and justice, not for some, not just for Americans, but for all. A vision that ultimately transcends the interests of any one nation-state. As a bumper sticker I saw recently said, you know, I love my country, but I think we need to start seeing other people. Remember the lyrics of our opening hymn, this is my home. This is the country where my heart is. Here are my hopes, my dreams, my holy shrine. But other hearts in other lands are beating with hopes and dreams as true and high as mine. Hear my song of peace for their land and for mine. But that sentiment of world peace is not the conclusion to most presidential speeches of recent decades. Instead, it has become reflexive for presidents to conclude major addresses with, thank you, God bless you, and God bless the United States of America, right? How many times have we heard those exact words? Those words have become so commonplace that it's easy to assume that they, surely that must go all the way back to George Washington, But it doesn't go back to Washington. It goes back to Richard Nixon. Those words were first said by a U.S. president as he concluded his speech trying to convince us after the Watergate scandal that you should trust him. Uh, And it was Ronald Reagan who first used it regularly. Out of the 229 major presidential speeches from the inauguration of Franklin Roosevelt in 1933 to the end of Carter's term in 1981, Nixon's use of God Bless America was the only time, the only time a president used that phrase publicly. 
In contrast, from the inauguration of President Reagan in 1981 to the Bush administration in 2008, 49 of the 129 major presidential addresses used the line. And every time I hear a president close the speech with that line, it makes me think of the 2003 Chris Rock political satire, Head of State, in which which Rock's opponent concludes every speech with what sometimes can seem to be the underlying message. The opponent says blatantly, God bless America and no place else. And Rock finally challenges him at the end by saying, ending his speech, God bless America and every place else. The phrase God bless America is an example of what religion scholars call American civil religion. A set of beliefs and symbols and rituals in American public life that are essentially a patriotic religion of the nation, sometimes conscious, often operating at the unconscious level. In American civil religion, our martyrs include Lincoln, MLK, JFK. Our scriptures include the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and his second inaugural address. Our sacred spaces include the National Mall here in D.C., Arlington National Cemetery, and Mount Rushmore. Our sacred symbols include the flag, the Statue of Liberty. Our sacred music includes the Star-Spangled Banner and America the Beautiful, God Bless America. Our creed is the Pledge of Allegiance. Our High Holy Days include Memorial Day, July 4th, Election Day, and Inauguration Day, these days of high pomp and circumstance. So on this Memorial Day weekend, on the eve of one of our national High Holy Days, I'd like to invite us to reflect some on both the promise and the perils of American civil religion. Just naming that phenomenon of American civil religion, that in all seriousness, these things that I've just named, these civil secular symbols, they rise and operate in a religious way in our society, whether acknowledged or unacknowledged. And simply naming that there is an American civil religion can help make the unconscious conscious so that we might deal with it on a a more adult and um, sane level. It can help us become more aware of that force in our country which can and has been used constructively to call us to our best selves. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That's civil religion used well and responsibly. But it's also been abused cynically for war profiteering, for warmongering, and other ways. Arguably the most important text of American civil religion is the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, here's the religion part, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Governments don't just have the right to exist, according to the Declaration of Independence. They are instituted, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. In an age of the absolute divine right of kings, saying that governments derive their right from the consent of the governed is, was, is and was radical. During the Civil War, President Lincoln used that opening line in his Gettysburg Address as a challenge to call us to live more fully into that promise of Jefferson's declaration. Lincoln said, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived 
in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. But it was far from clear in either Jefferson or Lincoln's own day whether all men actually meant all males. That was an active point of debate in Lincoln's day, just as neither Jefferson nor Lincoln would have included women at that point as being equal. But Lincoln harnessed the power of American civil religion. He harnessed the power of that sacred scripture of the Declaration of Independence, which had come to be a sacred text at that point, to expand the concentric circle of who was included that later generations would continue to expand to include women, the disabled, and lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender citizens of this nation. That's civil religion at its best, using the power of secular scripture to include the marginalized. You know, you might say we'd all be better off if we just let go of American civil religion. But let us settle for now with making more people conscious of it, because it doesn't appear to be going away anytime soon. As a side note for any fans of, as I am, of Ken Burns' for the most part excellent documentary, The Civil War, both he and the historian Shelby Foote get it wrong when they say that Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was met with a stony silence. That's a myth. Most contemporary newspapers noted that the speech was very well received at the time. Some attacked the content of the speech, but none said that it provoked only silence. It's probably a myth invented by Lincoln's enemies. There's much more to say about American civil religion, both then and now, but I'll limit myself for now to only a few more prominent examples. For example, we literally built a temple to Lincoln and put it on the National Mall. It's modeled on the temple to Zeus in Olympia, Greece, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Unless anyone missed the obvious symbolism of this temple with Lincoln set up like a god in it, it literally says above Lincoln in all caps, in this temple, right? Check it out next time you're on the mall. It says in huge letters right above his head. Um, similarly, similarly, the sculptor who carved the faces of Washington and Jefferson and Roosevelt and Lincoln into Mount Rushmore frequently said in public statements about his work that his intention was to suggest the gods they have become. Incidentally, the original plan was also not to end with just four presidential faces. Carving was to continue until the, features, uh, the figures had clothing and arms down to the waist with one of Washington's hands on a sword and Jefferson's right hand on Washington's arm while Lincoln held the lapel of his coat. For better or worse, time and funding ran out. There's also the tragically symbolic choice to carve Mount Rushmore, not just anywhere, but to carve it into the Lakota Sioux's sacred site, the the Pahasapa, or Black Hills. So from an indigenous perspective, this sacrilege is a classic example of American civil religion gone awry. It also sadly mirrors the treatment of American Indians by um, white men in U.S. history. For now, I'll give just one final example of American civil religion. 
In the opening paragraphs of President Kennedy's inaugural address, there are three classic intersections of church and state. The first is, he says, for I have sworn before not just you, but I have sworn before you and Almighty God the same solemn oath our forebears prescribed nearly a century and three quarters ago. And second, Kennedy said, the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hands of God. Justice Jefferson used civil religion in the Declaration of Independence uh, to assert that certain rights were inalienable, endowed by their creator, irrespective of what George III or any other king said. Kennedy is using civil religion to say that there are human rights that are transcendent over any state's laws, no matter what any state does. There are these human rights. It's the same logic that led our transcendentalist forebear, Henry David Thoreau, in his famous essay, Civil Disobedience, to say an unjust law is no law at all and should be resisted. Fascinatingly, President Kennedy invoked God a third and final time in that inaugural address in the final line, but he did so with quite a significant modern twist that puts the responsibility on us. He said, with a good conscience, our only reward. He didn't say, do it because you're going to get rewarded in heaven. Kennedy said, with a good conscience, our only reward. With history, the final judge of our deeds. Let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. My larger point has been to make us more conscious of American civil religion, that the next time you hear politicians using religious language, you can take a half step back and say, what's, what's really going on here? Am I being manipulated? Yes. Yes, you are. Uh, and become more aware of the ways it can and has been used to manipulate the American public for good and for ill. The single most powerful warning I've ever seen of the dangers of American civil religion at its worst is an anonymous quote. It is often misattributed to uh, Sinclair Lewis, but it is not anywhere in any of his writings. But it says that when fascism comes to America, it will be wrapped in the flag and carrying a cross. When fascism comes to America, it will be wrapped in a flag and carrying a cross. That when we're convinced to, when and if we are convinced to give up our civil liberties, it will be somebody convincing us to do it that has a row of American flags behind it and a cross right there on the pulpit. And it won't, and it will be because they are manipulating Christianity and they are manipulating patriotism. We need to be more conscious of civil religion because when it operates only at the unconscious level, it can and has been abused to silence dissent and to cynically manipulate the uninformed and misinformed masses. But ultimately, civil religion, like Islam, like Christianity, or any other religion, is not inherently good or evil. It can be harnessed either way. In the words of the public theologian Brian McLaren, there are two kinds of every religion, and that includes American civil religion, one of social control and one of social transformation. Think of all the ways that Islam and Christianity and Buddhism and American civil religion, they've been used for both, both social control and social transformation, to hold people down and to lift people up. 
They can be used as an opiate to pacify people into compliance and as a stimulant to empower people to imagine a better world, a better future, a better life, giving them the courage to live in peaceful defiance of violent, corrupt, and greedy powers that be. Neither kind of religion is perfect. Both contain good and sincere people. But if those who use God and religion and those sacred symbols for social control are left to define faith, the religion they define will be a false one, an ugly one, and an idolatrous one. Unitarian Universalism is a big tent drawing from many sources, both secular and sacred. May we continue to be a movement who lifts people up, empowering them to imagine a better world, a better life, a better future, giving them the courage to live in peaceful defiance of injustice wherever it is found, and for peace, liberty, and justice for all. That when fascism comes to America, it will come wrapped in a flag and carrying a cross. As many of you know, before becoming a UU, I was first a Southern Baptist in childhood and then became a member of the much more progressive group, the Alliance of Baptists. And I was on the committee of, for the Alliance of Baptists when they were asked to redesign their logo. And there was a fascinating conversation there where someone said, well, we definitely need to incorporate the cross somehow. And I said, I couldn't disagree with you more. And that's because as a progressive Christian, I have argued with so many people over the years that I'm like, Christians are not a Good Friday people. Christians at their best are an Easter people. Why is there this obsession with this, you know, I call it vampire Christianity, wanting Jesus only for his blood, you know, as opposed to following him, right? Wanting him for his life for how he lived in this open, generous, merciful way. And I'll say, and if you are an Orthodox Christian who believes in the resurrection, that's the good news, right? I mean, the good news is is new hope and new life on the other side of death, that life goes on, that life continues, that communities continue to build and to persevere and are resilient in the face of persecution and death. That should, I mean, it's like, why would you want the cross as the thing you're constantly, you know, lifting up? I mean, yes, that happens, but that's not the good news. The good news is this way of life, this way of being beloved community. So to me, but, and then of course the cross was not the, the symbol of Christianity in the first 300 years. It was not until the early fourth century with the emperor Constantine, with this marriage of church and state that Constantine had this dream, allegedly, we can get into that later if you want to, of in this sign you will conquer. And then he started putting the cross on his, but the, the cross is a symbol of Roman state execution, Right? That, I mean, that's how, that's how Jesus died. As some of you have heard me say this before, that, you know, if Jesus had died during the French Revolution, would we have little gold guillotines around our neck? If he died in Texas, would we put electric chairs on the top of our steeples? That's what a cross is. I mean, it's funny, but it's, but it's not, right? I mean, so it's... Uh, so that that's an example. It's the same thing that's happened with American civil religion. Is that is the same thing that's happened with Christianity. Is it can be perverted and uh, manipulated. Because the flag can be used to, you know, to stir up the masses in this kind of demagogic way. You know, a demagogue is someone who, instead of using reason, right, manipulates people's emotions and manipulates them in this unconscious level. That The flag is actually this beautiful symbol. The, the U.S. flag, I think uniquely among the nation's flags, changes 
based every new state, right, we add a new star. That's not common, and I think it's the only flag that does that. So it's sort of inherently flexible in that way and open to growing and including more people. It's also inherently pluralistic because you have those reminders of the states, the 13 original colonies. It's not just this bam symbol of the country, right? It's sort of you see the diversity in the flags. It's really, in a lot of ways, this beautiful symbol, but that's also been used for jingoism, for warmongering, for perverted patriotism. So... Uh, and so I think the criteria to think of is when I'm, when someone's using religion, when someone's using patriotism, is this increasing my love for others and for every person in the world? Is this increasing my joy, my, you know, my hope, my love, my peace? Or is this use of religion and patriotism, is it increasing hate and fear and cynicism? You know, that, that's a good litmus test. What, what are the fruit of these words? So as you continue your journey, continue them not in fear-mongering, not in cynicism. Continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.